And welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing humanity at work and the future of the work and the workplace. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Anna Tavis, a clinical professor and the academic director of the Human Capital Management Department at NYU School of Professional Studies. Anna, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the show. So excited to talk to you, Susie. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for accepting. Uh, Anna, you're also a researcher, a global educator, and a coach focusing on the future of work. And I know we share this quest to humanize the workplace, which is where we met. And you also look to develop innovative approaches to talent and organizations to create more inclusive and human-centered workplaces. Your research, your teachings and lectures globally are on this subject. And your new book, Humans at Work, explores this very topic. I would love for you to tell us what inspired you both to write this book and why now? Thank you so much. It's an excellent way to start the conversation. I think what we've just all gone through, maybe still going, you know, on the tail end of the pandemic through, um, has really redefined our relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, w- I actually want to quote uh, Larry Fink. Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock. And every year he uh, writes a letter. BlackRock is the largest investment firm in the world based out of New York. A few years ago, Larry Fink started writing these letters to C- CEOs of companies, he, his portfolio companies uh, mm-hmm. that they invest in over a $3 trillion in, in investments. But it kind of became a statement to the business community. And and the reason I'm bringing it up, because I think that coming with, you know, the the, the, uh, gravity and the authoritativeness of um, a black rocket really resonates with all of us. And what he said in his 2022 letter was that no relationship has been changed by the pandemic more than the relationship between employers and employees. And I think that um, that how that relationship has changed is what the main point, the main uh, subject matter of the book is all about. But I also am taking a historical perspective mm-hmm. through the evolution of work and evolution of other aspects of work and also looking at the parallel track of technology development. Yeah. And kind of exploring that tension between the humans in technology and at the same time looking at the accelerator that the pandemic represented. Mm. And I think, you know, technology and data analytics and AI and all, you know, exponentially moving forward has really changed that relationship, but also the way people engage with others and, and with the organizations and you look into the different factors driving these organizational changes and digitization of work, distributed workplaces, et cetera, et cetera. And the four W's, what you call the four W's. So work, workforce, workplace and worth. But I particularly liked the idea of the rise of the no collar economy and the idea of work coming to workers rather than workers going to work. Can you walk us through that concept, which for me is pivotal to understanding how we remain relevant in an interconnected basically digital environment. Yeah. Thank you, Susie. I do believe that in order for us to understand the future, we can't lose the connection to the past. And I know mm-hmm. that that's why the book kind of flowed through 
you know, centuries at times when it, where it was relevant. Because to me, as I was looking at kind of the historical slice I was mm. examining, I saw that most commentators on the future of work do not go beyond the Industrial Revolution. No. It's kind of the Industrial Revolution and industrialization and manufacturing and Model T basically is the frame of reference for a lot of, you know, those commentaries that we mm. see today. What I actually argue in the book is that we need to go much further down into the economies that by the way they've been set up are more representative of what we're heading toward in the future Yeah, as a historical framework to, to your question. And that is uh, the artisanal communities, mm. how the artists were set up. Because if you think about how those communities existed, that's where work was at home. The home was the workplace because the artisans and their whole families were engaged. And if you look historically how they became, they were alienated from, mm. you know, their homes and brought into the factories and their work, this kind of holistic experience of work that artisans had, they were creators of each product, just became so, so shrunk to a particular, mm. A particular function where they were just in the conveyor line for the for the for the expediency of it. So I am going back there and saying, you know, we need to look at work much more holistically and uh, and better understand that that kind of relationship, very special relationship that creators have to their work. So that's one historical moment that I capture, and I hope it will be eye-opening to uh, people reading about, you know, that history. The other mm -hmm. thing is, to your point about the collar, it was very interesting to me as a metaphor how this whole language around collar yes. evolved. It mm -hmm. started out actually in the U.S. in the in the 30s, where kind of denim was invented, actually, <laughs> uh, from the fashion perspective. Mm -hmm. And then there were blue-collar denim wearing workers because it was kind of a very durable very you know a long lasting type of work attire that people mm. were wearing and then there were white collar workers that was also kind of the the office staff um, that was described and and then i take a point in history which was again you know just a few years ago right before the pandemic where the technology came in and there's a big movement around workforce development, et cetera, where we realize that that distinction oftentimes between, you know, uh, where people work, how they work, et cetera, through technology, you don't need a collar. And I actually mm -hmm. bring in, I actually bring, it was Ginia Rametti, the CEO of IBM, who wrote a letter to the American president at that time saying we're in the, a no-collar economy today because we need people who can do jobs regardless. And, and ironically, you know, we've seen denim switching to be kind of the a universal. Yes. So that all changed. And then I also introduced uh, the Zoom shirt, the Zoom shirt uh, where you know, all of those collars were gone and people were just not no collar at all oftentimes and just the, sh the Zoom shirt. 
hanging at the back of the chair, ready for the next Zoom call to come. Mm. You actually put that on. And kind of through the evolution of the clothing, I looked at the evolution of the concepts of work as well, all the way to now how we are creating smart clothes, because my my book actually captures you know, that kind of historical development all the way to the future and seeing how technology is becoming more and more integrated, immersed and absorbed by, you know, humanity. It's not mm. seen. So now we're, we're looking at smart clothing, smart clothing that's going to not only provide you feedback on your heart rates, et cetera, et cetera, but also help create the right you know, productivity, the right conditions, like temperature, et cetera. Mm. I was looking at some of the partnerships that, uh, let's say, Levi's uh, forming with smart fashion uh, technology companies, you know, creating these new clothing, starting with with sports, obviously, but it's, it's coming into the workplace as well. Mm. So we kind of see that's really, really interesting development and integration of technology. And I do think that technology itself will stop being kind of the other and is going to be much more integrated into how work is being done. But to put to make the full circle for you, I do think that we are going to be seeing a lot of that, what used to be in Europe, guilds, yeah. the emergence of those guilds mm. and people connecting outside of work and more around there interest the, the products they produce, et cetera, in a much more holistic setting at home and um, some other places, we kind of going through these cycles of evolution and returning with the help of technology, with the help of different tools that we invent to some of the historical hu- human mm. kind of formations at mm. work. So it was fascinating to kind of track this down to the to the history of artisans and uh, and and how industrial revolution actually disrupted what worked in those types of economies and i think it's fascinating because as i hear you talk and i picture these what was coming to mind was cycles like you say and ironically we're going back to the beginning <laughs> if i look exactly. at, the, at the history but it but it's permanent reinvention and i think technology just makes that faster and faster which has its own human challenges, doesn't it, in terms of how the brain works and how you learn and unlearn and, and, and relearn and things like that. So I was also asking myself the question, and I would love your thoughts on, what effect does that have on the experience then? Because we've been through sort of user experience with technology. We now talk about employee experience, customer experience, digital experience, learner experience, humor experience. So it's all about the human experience. So what does that mean? for the new workplace for you? How is that playing out in that cycle, Anna? I think um, we are moving into this space of experience Mm. even further because of the metaverse and because of the, um, these virtual reality that's coming in where we are going to be, you know, creating those types of experiences Mm. are, you know, almost like generating environments where, certain experiences will be triggered for employees. And again, that's in, in, again, in search of productivity, in search of some engagement and innovation. And we are almost in the process right now with those types of technologies, a better understanding of how to hijack (laughs) some of the 
some of the high hardwiring that we are what we were inherited through all, all of the evolution of the human race. And that's where, you know, this is why we're so becoming so exceedingly aware of the importance of the ethics. I think we're going to see a massive, massive turn to the considerations of ethics and how these experiential technologies that can absolutely you know, transform and transport people into uh, different environments, which on the positive side, if the intention is is good mm-hmm. and help, but on the dark side, it could also lead to some really disastrous outcomes for humanity. And we are exactly at that tipping point right now mm-hmm. that we have to be, again, engaged and very aware and well-educated about the kinds of choices we're going to make about technology going forward. Yeah, about, about the fact that it remains ethical, but also that it remains for the collective good of humanity, let's put it that way, which which brings me to the discussion around empathy. You know, you you dedicate in your book a whole part to designing for inclusion and where empathy is the superpower, but also I like it when you say, let empathy, not numbers, drive inclusion. Can you walk us through that concept and how, for me, it's becoming more and more relevant as we move into a more automated world? As everything else, you know, empathy kind of surfaced as a, as one of the key competencies for leaders and uh, co-workers and in general kind of that key ingredients in the culture of organizations mm. during the pandemic. And companies really rose and fell based on how they leaned into the kind of the empathetic side of themselves. We've seen, you know, uh, the the CEOs who, you know, executed mass firings on Zoom and the repercussions of that. At the same time, we see see companies, and I give an example of Airbnb, and there are multiple other companies, but that, you know, uh, sacrifice, you know, a lot of their, you know, resources to to support the employees, even though they had to follow them or, you know, let them go. But how companies treated their employees kind of became front and center. Mm-hmm. And that was an, an, an interesting, that was a very public, I would say, display of empathy at scale that we have not seen before. Everyone was pretty much tested on that. Mm-hmm because of the global nature of the pandemic, right? So I think that's kind of what uh, brought empathy, um, again, to the the attention of the whole world and the workplace that started to think about how we deploy empathy to manage our organizations. Again, in the spirit of the book, I went a little bit into the history to look at where empathy came from. It was a Fairly recent, actually, discovery, as I see, even the vocabulary of a lot of these types of emotions really evolved fairly recently in the 19th century and was primarily applied to the arts in in, uh, Germany, in German universities, etc. And obviously, to a certain extent, with some of the migration that happened uh, during World War II, when a lot of German psychologists migrated to the United States, you know, those types of principles uh, were embedded in the, uh, some of the initial theories like 
Kurt Levine, for example, of organizations and organizational development. Mm. So that's where I kind of see empathy being introduced. And then obviously empathy didn't just fly and Mm. everyone kind of embraced it. There were a lot of detractors in the kind of neoclassical shareholder first economy that we had with, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, empathy was considered to be negative because how could, if you are too empathetic, you're not going to be too focused on mm. uh, the revenues, on the financial benefits, et cetera. You're going to be too kind of uh, immersed in empathizing with people. And it was basically the, the cutthroat kind of capitalism that has been built around these concepts. And you can see where the detractors came from. And so, therefore, I see the pandemic, and it's in a, to a certain extent, the financial crisis we experienced in 2008, et cetera, yeah. was also a, a pretty brutal display of how decisions were made uh, primarily on the financial basis. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I see the pandemic as a huge pivot toward humanizing the workplace. And so I welcome this conversation. And then what I also have done has looked into how empathy is going to be the primary driver of economy, even economy, the product development services, et cetera, et cetera. And that is because empathy is the kind of gateway into inclusion. Yeah. You asked that question. I know mm-hmm. I'm going around about ways to get us there, but but inclusion is, you know, is not possible without the ability to feel as the other or understand, mm-hmm. even you know, intellectually, but still understand the position of the other, accept it mm-hmm. and admit it. And so what we're seeing now that with the development of AI, with the development of other tools, we're actually a much in a much better position to, again, to our conversation of experience, to create those environments where people can learn to empathize. Yeah. So my thesis in the chapter on, on empathy is that we can actually teach people again how to be empathetic. Because on the one hand, we're seeing technology as kind of, again, the the alienating component Mm. where we can see all sorts of things on on the screen. And we think that this is, doesn't, you know, it does not uh, concern me, et cetera. Kind of, you kind of become uh, distanced from what's Mm. going on. Imagine virtual reality and other types of environments where you can actually walk in the skin oftentimes and the shoes of the other. Mm. Um, give you an example. I tested out a few of those VR technologies and one of them was a, a live VR tour mm. of Anne Frank's house. Oh, wow. um, okay. And it was just, an, there's nothing that could replace, even though I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there physically. Mm. But the ability through these tools to put people through the experiences is just really mind expanding. Mm. I know a company here, startup company here in the U.S. that is using, again, VR to put people in situations where they can 
kind of spend a day at work as an African-American woman, for example, mm-hmm. and, and how this is all organized around you so that you can literally walk in the shoes. Another example of these types of technologies, letting people make uh, that make empathy real, make mm. empathy tangible, right? Mm. Is um, my one of my favorites is um, MIT Age Lab. They're looking at, and I, I I describe their what they're doing and some of the examples. What they're doing basically, they're studying aging, and they've created these um, age suits where they put you know twenty five year old researchers and product develop developers and other people who are involved in creating products and services for mm. the aging population. And they put them in those suits so that they can experience the constraints, you know, a blurred vision, hard of hearing, you know, a lack of mobility, et cetera, of like Mm. 80 plus year old um, individuals. And obviously putting these young designers through these types of experiences allows them to create products and services that are relevant to those individuals who they're designing for, right? Mm. Mm. So that that is not just having a conversation or running a survey, no. but this is where, again, back to our initial conversation about how experience is going to be front and center. Mm. Because as a designer, if you are not just running a focus group, but you are, you are really experiencing for a day that living the physical life of an 80-year-old individual, you're going to come out of it designing things that are a lot more suitable a lot more empathetic to mm. the people who are going to be mm. using absolutely and I think my my question coming off the back of that is so you can experience empathy and people can have an experience of empathy but how do you bridge the gap with the stakeholders and the shareholders and convince them that empathy is good for the bottom line because if I come back to what you were talking about before, where empathy was seen as a weakness, so a strong leader in inverted commas is not empathetic, isn't does not vulnerable, doesn't show compassion. You know, how can we bridge that gap? I'm going back into the organizational world, of course. How, how can we bridge that gap in organizational culture? Yeah, in the organizational culture, again, we, let's go back to uh, the contract um, between employees and employees, mm. right? Mm. In that particular situation, back to Larry Fink's comments, I think that we've um, kind of permanently moved to a very different work environment. First of all, first of all, and I was just recently asked about uh, like performance management, for example, mm. uh, what's the future of performance management in this type of environment that I described, that kind of human centric. Yeah. I think performance, anything that could be performance managed in a traditional way, which is a linear way of saying, I set goals, I meet the goals, it's all very positive, et cetera, is going to be automated. Technology has come to the point where any level of repetition, even in the white collar jobs, mm. is those tools already exist. To what extent they're being actually adopted, assimilated at different levels, it's just a matter of time. Mm. And again, and again, the pandemic accelerated that. However, what's going to be at a premium, and this is where I think that we're going to transcend analytics. Mm. Analytics is going to be. AI 
you know, we will not, as we've seen people uh, getting less competent in like basic math because they have calculators yeah. and they don't have using our brains. We complain about the children now not, you know, mm. using calculators from the very beginning and computers. So in, in so many different ways, we are going to transcend. Uh, this is a the kind of the brain part of the economy is 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 going is the present, and we're going to transcend it into experiential and more kind of emotional side because that's where actually the technology is moving toward. That's yeah. the frontier. If we look at where the frontiers of technologies are, they are in that kind of emotional space mm. there where. Let's take the call centers. We have technologies now that can identify the mood. That's the next, the mood with it of, of the customer calling in mm. so that they can direct that particular call based on, a, on a various data points around how aggravated they are when they are making like uh, pushing mm. the buttons and whatever. And so they are being connected to the people who are specifically trained to be dealing with these types of negative emotions. Let's put it that way. Mm. So we are going to have technologies and robots that are going to be pulling in people at the points into the engagement, for example, with a customer at the points where it's only where there's so much uncertainty that only a human can be solving for that. But, you know, what we call it now, the new coming out process is how quickly you know, how long it will take you to know that you're actually engaging with a robot, Okay. right? How many of those interactions it's going to take you to understand that you're actually talking to a machine, not a human being. Mm. And that length is becoming longer and longer because mm-hmm. the machines are you know, now able to personalize their responses at a, as, and again, through machine learning and natural mm-hmm. language processing, et cetera, all the AI tools, it now can take over 20 interactions so I think that what we're going to see that with those technologies moving in and at a premium, at a premium is going to be that emotional experiential component where, you know, we're going to be interacting with a human being for better or worse. You know, there a lot of people feel very sad about this and saying at the same time, you know, again, that's how we can remain even more human. I think the history, as I kind of looked historically again, like from the industrial revolution on, it was all about mechanization and depriving humans and especially this lean six sigma, Mm -hmm. we kind of peeled off everything that was distracting, as I said, that that, uh, pushback against empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that could distract us from delivering those results. Now we are going to be really valuing it a lot more because that's where innovation, creativity, and uniqueness happens. Whereas everything else 
could be automated and delegated to the machines. Mm. So I was going to say, if, if I take the automation that's going further and further towards that boundary, what therefore keeps us relevant as human beings? Exactly. Um, particularly in the workplace. And empathy, creativity, and innovation is, is what I'm hearing. Another thing, Susie, that I found absolutely fascinating and also wrote about it is how we are going to be personalizing machines and making them more human. Mm. You know, with the robots, the big discussions in the community right now with AI, et cetera, is around uh, whether we should be creating these robots to look like humans, Mm. right? Mm. Because what the research shows you know, running those robots in different situations is that people do start relating. And I wrote about this psychologically relating Mm. to these machines as companions. I actually write in that chapter, I write about, again, historically, the evolution of our relationship with animals and looking at the development of animal rights. Mm. Because if you think about that, even and even in some societies today, you know, the the, the animals are treated very differently from how we see them, let's say, in in our countries, right? Mm -hmm. In our continents. And and then there there is sort of a bill of rights for animals. There are animal rights. Mm -hmm. Um, Animals are being protected and, and that movement is getting stronger and stronger. Right. It's like we we begin to understand animals differently. But only if you, you know, just a couple of decades ago, there's still experiment experimentation, medical, you know, medical trials, all sorts of things were conducted and and animals were treated very cruelly. Right. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating to watch. So one of the trends that I've commented on was the discussion around whether we are going to be developing similar type of rights for artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. If we are going to be dealing with machines, even in the workplace, that will look like humans will be responding, you know, in even emotional ways in a certain way, and and it's already done, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of rights will those machines have? We know that there's already a precedent that uh, Saudi Arabia gave yeah. citizenship yeah. to the robot, but but it will happen on a daily basis. And will the same thing, that like will cruelty to machines be something that we need to look at? For example, if you see a robot and you see somebody being very violent to what that robot who looks like a human, interacts with you, works with you uh, as a co-worker, right? Mm. You know, so are there any protections that we are going to evolve, you know, as humans toward uh, those new members of our community as we accepted animals just about 50 years ago as legitimate Mm. members of our community? You know, will there be technologies that will evolve to that point where they're going to be members of our work teams and we're going to treat them that way. And is there an element of inclusion that we talk about right now is exclusively sort of human dimension? Will there be a, you know, a a technology side to that as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a world of 
the, the partnership between empathy and ethics, isn't it? Because the more empathetic you get and the more you train uh, machines to be empathetic. I mean, I, I always remember uh, we had um, a pepper robot in the office and I used to stroke his head when I walked in and speak to it. And somebody said to me one day, Sue, you're talking to a robot. But I didn't feel necessarily that I was talking to a robot because the program responses were so warm, if you like, in inverted commas, and almost human that I had to check myself and thought, yeah, I am. I am. It was almost sort of reflex. So I think that's very interesting as we go down that road, as humanity goes down that road, what part remains human, as you say, and what part ethically goes over into technology? And do we look at machine rights, I suppose, is, is exactly. what you're saying. I mean, they're already in Japan. They already have um, robot animals, mm. animal mm. pets. Mm. And also some of those experiments, like, for example, in retirement communities where we know there's a huge shortage of labor and, you know, they've been putting these uh, caretaker robots into mm. with, the elder, with the elderly. And it's incredible how bonded uh, the humans become with these machines and actually it actually helps their mental health and it helps them, you know, to get that sense of companionship that you know is often the isolation that comes with um, with aging for example mm. Mm. it's interesting and it's just it's just one of those topical things that we're just going to have to permanently reinvent aren't we i know we're jumping around a little bit but i did want to also touch on your mm. idea of uh, organizations as platforms work at scale um because one of the biggest discussions i have to date is how do you scale new ways of working how do you scale empathy for example how do you scale human experience at work so can you walk us through organizations as platforms and and what that concept is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as we speak today platforms in organizations are really taking over Mm. we are coming from the environment that had a whole portfolio of different tools we even if you connect them we call that the ecosystem etc using that kind of language I think the platform model is um, allowing kind of creating that base on which we you can plug um, in different apps, different tools, serving different needs. But at the same time, it's all kind of organized mm. and with the same logic that helps deliver at scale. For example, you know, one of the interesting interactions that I'm exploring right now um, and we're going to have a whole big conference on that in New York in the summer Mm -hmm. is how coaching mental health mentoring moved to platforms during the pandemic so that's a good example of platformization of even the most human services that we have Mm -hmm. so there will be you know, and an access point to, you know, a very high touch engagement, uh, but it will be delivered through these technologies and platforms are going to be that um, underlying foundation on which everything, the companies are just going to be plugging in different apps, different uh, services, different opportunities uh, from the career development and other types of benefits through these kind of uh, organizations, uh, organization on a platform. So that's where I think the future of enterprise technology that will be employee facing, Mm. just as we have it for the clients, but now employee facing is going to become, is going to come through the platform. And that's where 
you know, to, again, to our initial point about experience, that's where mm. we can capture that holistic experience because through the unity of a platform, we're going to be able to see holistic data and, um, you know, through the life cycle, through the journey of people all the way from, you know, when uh, they apply for a job, the first time they touch that platform mm. to all the way when they're exiting and maybe alumni relations of some sort, alumni alumni connections to the platform. So, so that's where I see these technologies really taking over and dominating how organizations are going to be managing employees and those mm. relationships through through platforms. Mm. And I love that because for me, it creates a more inclusive model because it democratizes access to these type of skills and learning these skills, which traditionally sometimes are for higher levels of the organization or just talent or only if you're in a leadership program and things like that. So I really like that idea and the idea of it allowing end-to-end visibility across a certain process or experience. But I do wonder um, what the dangers are of it becoming too transactional and therefore dehumanized, if you like. What do you think about the dangers of that and how can we anticipate it as we move forward into platforms? Yeah, I mean, and that's where we really need to see the technology to evolve to that higher level of mm. you know, empathy and mm. personalization and uh, individualization mm. uh, so that through the platforms, we're going to be able to deliver those custom services we've always talked about. Again, I think with the technologies available to us now, and there's mm. always a footnote to anything we're talking about here is the ethics, right? The yeah. decision decision, and how, who is pulling the strings, who is making decisions, and to what use all of these technologies are going to be put. But the bottom line is that we have those technologies now, and we are definitely moving away from the mechanical, sort of purely mechanical phase of technologies. Mm. Technologies Mm. are going to be much more human. Technologies are going to be human-like. Technologies are going to be invisible, like I described in the clothing and these interactions you're going to have through multiple robots you wouldn't even know, Mm. but it's going to be available to you. So I think we are transcending those stages of technology development. Mm. And then I think the next phase and the big questions where we start questioning, I think we're beginning to see the limits of human capability or human capacity, both Mm. intelligence, you know, there's still, there are multiple, it's going to be a while but there are multiple areas now where technology is by far more efficient and a more, you know, from the performance perspective, more optimal mm. than any individual human is. So I think we're going to reevaluate again in this kind of emotional, empathetic st- stage, et cetera. Mm. We're going to evaluate what humans are better at. Yeah and outsource the rest of it to machines. And then we will need to be really mindful about who is going to be making those decisions to what end and how we are going to 
uh, relate from the mm. inclusion perspective mm. to a lot of those technologies that are coming into our lives. Yeah. So empathy and ethics, again, back hand in hand about how we can get better at being human as opposed yep. to everything we're outsourcing and automating. Anna, time is running, but I would really like to ask you, what's your biggest learning, personal learning, from researching this topic and writing your book? You know, I think it's not for everyone. I think everyone should be should be definitely paying attention to what's happening. And sometimes I think what the book really allowed me to do is to immerse myself And in some ways, you know, the pandemic was one of the reasons that my calendar all of a sudden opened up and I could easily not travel and Mm -hmm. sit in one place. And when we were all kind of sheltering in place, Mm -hmm. it just allowed a lot of that uh, space for contemplation where in normal life, you know, there's just too many distractions to that. Mm But yeah, but where I say it's not for everyone is exactly that it's i think it's a um it's a personal journey and uh it's very hard because part of it is you are on your own mm. you know as you are writing you have to you know really allow yourself huge chunks of time where you're not interacting you're not getting distracted you're not getting on social media etc and you're just researching i happen to love research but um, you know, it is a different kind of temperamental state yeah. that uh, I'm finding that not, not everyone is prepared to make those types of sacrifices. Where you even say no to your family, you say you lock yourself up in the attic to be writing mm. when everyone else is having fun. So there's a lot of a lot of that type of a self discipline that's required. And the question is. Will this whole genre, will that go away? Will it, you know, but so far, I mean, we see more books and I don't know if we can attribute it to a lot of ghostwriting going on. So, and, uh, and, will, and will the machines, I mean, as we know, the machines are pretty good writers, like for reporting and stuff, definitely in the media, you know, there's a lot of help that's coming from, from the machines where they can generate pretty well-written articles based on the research that AI can do and pull Mm. in all of the important information. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, again, that that could be one of the last domains to go. Therefore, I think it's it's going to be interesting to watch. But personally, it was very rewarding for me because, again, I, I had the luxury to immerse myself into the history, into some of the even looking way out there into the future of technology in almost like science fiction way and try to pull it all together into an argument about the workplace that we are currently in. And the one we're building for tomorrow, almost. And and just on that note, what would your sort of final call to action be to leaders in organizations looking at exactly that? How do I build tomorrow's workplace, which is essentially today's workplace, as we come out of the pandemic in the hybrid model? Yeah, I think it's about paying attention, uh, first and foremost, paying attention to where the technology is going, but most importantly, paying attention to your employees. I mm. think we've seen that relationship, again, back to our beginning, Susie, Larry, think mm. that relationship kind of was 
for many years so well defined in these contracts, et cetera. And, and with the pandemic, it came undone. Yeah. And a lot of the attention is now being paid to, you know, great resignation and other terms. However, however, as I do it in my book, I think we're far from settling in into something that's going to last us for the next 40 years. I think this is we're going to be in that state of flux for quite mm. some time. And just to throw something in that I feel strongly about. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on skills right now, and particularly, um, you know, hard skills that have to do with technology, data, et cetera, absolutely critical. However, as Mm -hmm. I said um, in one of our exchanges, I don't think that that's what's going to stay. I think the skills, again, are going to be redefined. We are we have to be prepared to that very, very dynamic back and forth between the employees and employees and of what, you know, to my initial chapter on work mm. and, and my last chapter on worth, worth. Yeah. where I'm asking a question, why work? Mm. You know, we're going to be in a place where those questions are going to come up more and more. And, and if we want to be in a business, we have to be helping our employees answer that question. We have to listen to what I have to say at the same time, help them get there because there's not that one established way of what work is about. And there's not going to be that performance management system that puts you on track for the whole year. Mm. going to be a lot of change, a lot of this dynamic reevaluation all the way to the question why work and the employers have to be with empathy standing by understanding where it's all going, understanding what their goals are and kind of solving for this in a very collaborative, very cooperative way, you know, along with their employees. Mm. So opening themselves and the discussion to what does it mean today? And that might be different tomorrow in terms of meaning and and sense making for the organization, but also for the person. Exactly. Okay, Anna, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights and thoughts and research. Where can people find out more about what you do? I actually, LinkedIn is is the best place to find me. I have a newsletter that I I am starting on a new series at work where I will be writing about, I've just written uh, an article about women at work, Mm -hmm. um, looking at other elements at work and and kind of continue to track that, um, again, dynamic changes that are happening. You know, LinkedIn is, I think, where most HR people are hanging out right now. (laughs) It will be great. It will be great to see anyone who wants to connect with me. Excellent. And when will your book, Humans at Work, be out? It will be out in March 2022, early March in Europe and uh, the rest of the world and late March in the US. Excellent. So uh, I'll listen and keep an eye out for it and and have a read and don't hesitate to get in touch with Anna over LinkedIn. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and the learning it has brought you. If so, please head over to iTunes and give us your review and feedback. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.